This is episode number 247 with the incredible Pablos Holman. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Super excited to have you on the show today. And we've got a very, very special guest joining us for this episode, Pablos Holman, the famous hacker, inventor, and entrepreneur. A person who has worked on projects ranging from a brain surgery tool to hurricane suppression machines, from 3D printing food to lasers shooting down mosquitoes. Pablos has over 20 million views on his TED Talks. He was our keynote speaker at Data Science Go 2018. And today he's joining us for this episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. So very, very excited to share this episode with you. We're going to be discussing lots of different topics ranging from how artificial intelligence is impacting the world, what the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, and how that is affected by technology, what roles data science and machine learning are playing in the future of the world, and many, many more. I can't wait to share this episode with you. Uh, a quick note is that this episode is also available in video on YouTube. So you can go to the Super Data Science YouTube channel and watch this whole episode in video of Pablos and me chatting over uh, the internet. So if you like, you can go to the Super Data Science YouTube channel and watch this whole episode of Pablos and me chatting over the internet. And whichever way you like to watch it or hear it, whether it's on YouTube or here on the podcast, this is going to be epic. We're going to discuss so many cool topics. I had such a fun chat with Pablos. So without further ado, I bring to you Pablos Holman, the famous hacker, inventor, and entrepreneur. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. And today we have a super special guest, Pablos Holman. Pablos, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. Awesome, awesome. Um, La I was, we were talking before about the drum in the background. That is so cool. Where's that one? Oh, yeah. I've got a djembe that's made of fiberglass. Oh, which nice. Makes it super light and super loud. And you can, uh, anyone can play it with just fingertips and it sounds amazing. Even if you don't know how to play the drums, it's a lot of fun. Is that like a side hobby of yours? Uh, I guess it used to be. I used to like play around with that stuff some, um, not so much these days, but um, yeah, it's it's just it's fun to make noise. So, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, Pablo's uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, for those who don't know, Pablo's was our keynote speaker at Data Science Go 2018. It was so much fun to meet you there, and I think everybody like had lots of fun as you talk i love how you started out with a little bit of salsa dancing where, where did you pick up the salsa um probably 14 years now i've been obsessed with dancing salsa so wow. it's just a good um a good way to like i don't know i think it's a good way to compensate for all the other kinds of things i do in my life and 
you can do it anywhere in the world. You don't need to speak the language. You just show up and dance with whoever's there. And it's, uh, it's really good. It's a lot of fun. Nice. Very cool. And uh, um, uh, yeah, so what did you think of the event? What did you think of Data Science Go 2018? Well, it was a really, I think, very like special, soulful kind of event. I was really pleasantly surprised. You know, a lot of times you get a bunch of nerds together, and um, you don't get that that much uh, energy. Um, I felt like people loved being there. Uh, it feels like a real community. Um, folks are trying to help each other out. They're super excited to be there. Um, I've been to a lot of events that are way less compelling than that. And yeah. so, um, so it's, it's, I thought that was pretty special. Um, you know, I was, uh, so fascinated by the folks there. It felt like possibly, I mean, I, I think it, there's no question. It had to be like the most diverse audience I've been in, um, in the tech industry for a tech event. Uh, I felt like, you know, there, there were two or three other white guys around, but it was pretty much people from all over the world. It was amazing to me. Um, I love that. And it was so exciting to see that, um, that happening. So I don't know how you did that. You got a lot of people from, um, different ethnic backgrounds, bunch of people from different countries. You got lots of women there. Like that's, uh, not the case at almost every tech event. And it's, um, a pretty special thing. So whatever you're doing, keep it up because everybody else is going to be jealous of, of what you've made there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. I remember we we're having lunch. You pointed that out and, uh, I, it's like, that's the first time I actually paid attention. It was like so natural yeah. to me and it was yeah. like, well, that's how things should be. And, yeah. uh, and this time, like we, this time around, we had people from 23 countries fly in to the event. So wow. Was, wow. Uh, cool. Really cool, yeah. Um, yeah, well, well, thanks. And um, definitely looking to, to grow that and continue that trend. We had, uh, I think we had 30% female speakers this time because, you know, that, that whole wow. concept. Like, before, like, I read an article recently on why it is important, like, how gender diversity can be improved in the tech industry. And sure. the reason why women don't, um, like, why don't we see a lot of women in this in STEM space in science, technology, engineering, maths? is, uh, is uh, because historically there haven't been many role models. There haven't been many women to look up to. And so mm. young women don't even, you know, like aren't that confident getting into the space because it's like, sure. but like if we, yeah, put, if we put speakers out there, if we put, you know, guests on the podcast and, and um, build those role models, or not even build, there's like showcase those role models that will inspire more sure. women to get into the space. Um, yeah, that's definitely seen, a factor. Yeah. Yeah. And you've probably seen this from your entrepreneurial career that um, when you have gender diversity in the executive team, company performs much better. Like that is a fact that has been studied and like there's lots of research yeah. papers on, on this uh, topic. No, I'm, I'm certain that's true. I also think like if you were operating without that, you'd just be missing out on like it's cutting your talent pool in half mm. uh, at the start. That's, there's no way to characterize that as an advantage. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, all right, well, uh, there's quite a lot of topics I want to cover. By the way, sure. everybody listening, you can find Publishers Keynote on YouTube. It's available uh, from the events if you want to watch it there. So we won't go into like all the exact same topics, but though there's a couple that I did want to cover. Um, but like maybe uh, the one of the most interesting things that, uh, there's lots of things we chatted about, but one of the uh, really cool things is, is like in general your background as an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. You, you're from like you do a lot of work in the Silicon Valley and you've done a lot of different projects, you know, from working with Bill Gates, working on this world's smallest computer to hacking and stuff like that. And, you know, your TED Talks have like 20 million views. Um, in terms of entrepreneurship, I love that idea that you shared where un entrepreneurs are not here to fix your business. Entrepreneurs are here to disrupt mm -hmm. the world. Can you tell us a bit about how that works in the Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think, you know, um, high tech entrepreneurship you know maybe in the in the 80s was necessary um because the only way to <clears throat> get a new technology developed and advanced into the world turned out to be in, in the context of a startup and, you know it was increasingly difficult to do that in big companies um and so almost by and then also you know if you were working on technology or computers you know you were trying to do new things almost by definition and so if you are that type of person who wants to do new things um well then it turns out that uh you know startups are the or the you know a lot oftentimes the effective way of doing new things um and so that's worked out well enough that you can get a lot of support for startups now and, and that, that's pretty great um, but, you know, the, the fundamentals are that you can get these new superpowers from technology, right? Um, if you invent a new technology and you bring that into the world, you can get a force multiplier on how you go after, um, solving big problems. And, um, you don't get that force multiplier from anything else. It's literally the, the exponent in your equation <laughs> that you get that, um, that gives you this exponential ability, this, this ability to solve problems at, that in a way, in a way that scales. And, um, that's because, um, lots of new technologies, especially computer technologies, have been generally applicable that you can solve lots of different kinds of problems with them and they can scale. Uh, meaning you could, you know, if you can uh, make one computer do something, it's not that much harder to make thousands or millions of computers do the same thing. So, um, so when you have that kind of superpower, um, then the job is to go figure out where to apply it. And if you look at what happens in big companies, a lot of times they're just not structured well for doing something new. Um, especially these days as um, publicly traded companies in particular, but, but really every company has gotten a lot of pressure to show um, you know, immediate performance results, at least on a quarterly basis, if not more often. Um, for their stockholders, well, they um, they can't take risks on doing new things too much. They have to do the same thing they already know works, 
and they have to do it a little faster, a little better, a little cheaper. So, um, so because of all that, startups became the context in which we were able to run a lot of experiments and try new things and figure out what works and get some support for it. And then, you know, it, that's the that's the necessary process of figuring out what's going to work. And a startup is kind of a experiment on a global scale. <coughs> startups are experiments. They're, each startup is a million dollar experiment to just try an idea, see if it can work, see if the team works, see if uh, it makes you know competitive sense in the market, all those things. And then the ones that work, well, then we pump a lot of money into scaling them or we sell them to bigger companies that are good at that kind of thing. But it's an ecosystem for running experiments. That's what startups are. And so um, if you're doing tech entrepreneurship, what that means is you've <laughs> it's different than um, entrepreneurship in general, right? If you start a restaurant, well, that counts as entrepreneurship. You could go start a restaurant, you've got a new business, you're an entrepreneur, which is possibly just fine, but that's not tech entrepreneurship. Tech entrepreneurship means I'm using technology to make a business and solve a problem in a new way that hasn't been possible before, hasn't been done before. And so um, that's you know that's a particularly appealing kind of startup because if it works, then you're going to get this you know big hit, and you, because you've you've taken that force multiplier, you solved a problem in a way that no one could imagine solving it before. And so those are the fundamentals. And the reason that I say we won't fix your business is that every business that's already successful has already evolved a kind of immune system. And the job of the immune system is to get rid of any risk, right? Just like the immune system in your body. And the thing that's most risky is change. So um, in any big company or successful industry, there's this immune system. And if you go in and you want to innovate or you want to try something new in that context you have to fight the immune system off the immune system has evolved over a long period of time and it's really good at its job and you're just a startup you suck at your job almost by definition <laughs> and so um so what i think is silicon valley has learned not to fight the immune system um some people haven't but by and large what we figured out works better is if we can take all those superpowers that we got from our computers and we can invent a parallel business or a parallel industry and make an end run around you and around the immune system. Um, that's what we mean by disruption. And that's what you can see happening uh, with all those, those so-called disruptive businesses. Uber did that to taxis or transportation in general, uh, urban logistics in general. Um, Airbnb did that to hospitality. Um, Facebook did that to the entire media industry. We did not try in any of those cases to go fix an old broken industry. In each of those cases, Silicon Valley just started from scratch and built a new parallel business or a parallel industry that is superior to the old one. So we're just gonna let the old industries grow old and die. We're gonna make up new ones. <laughs> 
to replace them. Nice. Very, very uh, apt description. And what is the percentage of successful startups that you see? Well, we always say that it's, you know, only 10%. But the truth is, um, you know, we say nine out of 10 startups fail. That's a made up number. They don't fail. It's just that, um, you know, fewer than that fail, but, but, um, they learn, they, but they fail to make a 10 or hundred X return for their investors. Mm. Right. So if you're a venture capitalist and you've got a startup that's profitable and is only going to give you a two or three X return on your investment, that's considered a failure. Wow. They'll shut you down because that's not useful for them. They need to be getting bigger hits and they need to shut you down and move on and go to go work on things that could provide that 10 X to hundred X return. Right. You know, they, opportunity cost for them. Yeah. So yeah, because you know, if you're just going to get, you know, two X return on your investment over five years, well, you could have put your money in a stock market or in something else. Right. So there's, there's no point doing high risk venture capital with the, with the money. So, so, you know, it's a little bit misleading. I mean, lots of startups, um, you know, they just fail to live up to the, to the kind of hype that they sort of generated when they were raising money. And, you know, when you raise money, venture capital for a startup, it's basically the worst loan in the world. Right, Why because because you know if I take five, ten million dollars from a venture capitalist, the you know and I want to and my startup is successful and the VC is happy. That means he made you know a hundred. I paid him. Uh, uh, he got a hundred million dollars back mm. for his ten million dollar investment. Yeah, a thousand sense. percent interest on your loan. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, and that's the success. <laughs> the failure is, you know, he didn't get any of his money back and my startup failed and shut down and I lost years of my life. And, you know, that's that that's when it goes south. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the worst loan in the world. But that's how it works. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, nobody else is going to loan you money for your crazy idea. Yeah. Interesting. That's really cool. Um, what, what you were saying about the uh, immune system of big business, that that's really a fascinating idea and reminded me of uh, the concept of the utility function in artificial intelligence and the whole idea when we when and if and probably when we create general uh, artificial intelligence it will have its own utility function for instance uh, let's say hypothetically uh, Ben Taylor uses this example uh, the utility function of the AI is to protect my wife you know make sure she, she's safe at all costs at all mm -hmm. time and then the AI decides that first of all it could decide that the best way to protect his wife is to actually kill him. You know, that's that's a problem in the programming. Like he didn't think that through. Uh, but on the other hand, if you the idea like with the immune system is if you go in and you try to change the utility function of the AI to be something like you know protect my wife and kids or or make a great dinner or whatever, then all of a sudden you changing the uh, utility function of the AI is a threat to the to it is executing its utility function in its own right, and therefore it will prevent you at all costs from changing the utility function. And I, I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, analogy. Well, well, I think the, you know, um, 
we're using these analogies from biology to try and give people a way of thinking about the technology, right? Um, but I think it's, um, you know, it's actually almost more important to do the opposite, um, which is think about the utility function of a human, mm. right? This is a this is much more important for people to do, right? What's the utility function of a human, of yeah. an actual man? What is it to pr protect his wife and kids? Is it to, you know, try and improve the community that he's a part of? Um, those things might be at odds with each other. Is it to um, become the, you know, alpha male of the tribe? You know, um, these kinds of things. And, and some of them are at odds with each other. And, and certainly at times you see what seem like really tragic choices made by people um, because they were operating on a, a different, you know, what we call in, utility function for humans is incentives, mm. right? Because <laughs> they were incentivized to, to solve a, a different problem than you are. And that can be very hard to relate to, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I think it's, you, you know, you can see the stark contrast between the choices made by people living in extreme poverty versus, you know, you and I. Yeah. Um, they have different incentives. They have different threat models. They have different problems that they're <laughs> they have to worry about. And so, I, I think that I think about those things a lot. I think most of the conjecture by humans about artificial intelligence is total bullshit and 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 a waste of human and activity because there's so much work left to do just figuring out what to do with human intelligence um, and until we solve that we're not going to have any meaningful contribution to artificial intelligence anyway and mm -hmm. so um, much more important to figure out like how do you make humans perform better yeah and I think it's not it's incentive but I think it's also combined with a belief system right like you take yeah. Uh, you take, uh, I don't know, Adolf Hitler, he had his yeah. own belief system. And you take right. somebody else in the same position as him who has similar incentives, but like in the US or in a democratic world, they have a different belief system. And that really. Oh, yeah. Things. Oh, yeah. But, but the belief system is part of what creates the incentives, right? Mm. You know? Not true. True. Um, like self incentives. Yeah. You incentivize yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. That ties in really well with, uh, this is what I loved, you know, like when you were doing your speech at Day Sense Go, I was uh, like, I was thinking of like, oh, maybe, you know, there'd be some questions that I want to ask you afterwards. And I was thinking, oh, there's this idea of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs that I, you know, I would love to talk to him about. And then you had it in your talk, and I realized that that was the first time I actually encountered it in your TED talk. Oh. When I was listening to it. Oh. I, I, like, I encountered the concept of the Maslow's hierarchy. <laughs> okay applied to you know uh, technology and how it works right. and so I think this ties in really well can you start, tell us a bit about uh, how you combine the two tech and mm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs well I think I use that because it's a pretty generally accepted model from you know psychology for what humans need to feel fulfilled mm. and what they need to you know to thrive mm -hmm. right and so you know he's showing but Maslow's hierarchy, which is you know quite old now, but also and quite famous, um, 
what Maslow's hierarchy shows is that, you know, at the fundamental level, you need things like food and you need breathing and you need, you know, shelter. Like these are basic fundamental needs. Um, and you need sex and, you know, or at least, you know, a species does. And then, um, at a, at a slightly higher level, you need things like, you know, physical security and you need, um, you know, some of these, these, you know, uh, you need a job or something. Um, you need work, you know, you need some of those things. Um, and those are, uh, you know, most people could relate to those things pretty well. Um, most people in the West don't have to worry about these kinds of needs. They're largely solved. You know, you're born American. Most of those needs are solved. Um, you're going to get food. You're going to get shelter. You're going to get enough heat to not freeze to death. Like we've pretty much figured out how to do that for everyone in America. Um, there are certainly some folks on the fringe that, that don't get all those things, but by and large, those are solved problems. Um, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs keeps going. And the higher you get, you get into things like, um, you know, family, friendship, um, you know, having a sense of community. And the point I'm trying to make is that when you think about how we're using technology to meet people's needs, well, we're using technology to meet all their needs on the bottom half of the pyramid. You know, we use technology to feed people. We use technology for medical, you know, uh, support and health. And we're, and we're improving that every day. Like we have all these technologies now that we're using to, you know, give you a healthier life and to keep more people alive, to feed 7 billion people is a big challenge. But you know what, we got there with new technologies. And um, they're not perfect and the job's not done, but we're able to meet that challenge because of, uh, of technology. But when you look at the, and I call that, I call that uh, quantity of life problems. Those are the things on the bottom half of the pyramid. We can keep more people alive and keep them alive longer and things like that. But <clears throat> when you get to the top half of that pyramid, it's things like, you know, uh, a sense of community, sexual intimacy, things like um, having, you know, expressing creativity, um, you know, things sense like uh, a sense of purpose and an, a um, feeling needed by the people around you. Like none of these things are things that technology is really helping solve right now. Right. These are needs that humans have. And I think it explains for me, it explains I, I see it um, when I when I look at the difference because I get to travel all over the world. And when I see the difference between, you know, my lifestyle, which is, you know, arguably uh, pretty affluent. I mean, it's not that I'm rich. It's just that I'm American and I live on the West Coast and I work in tech. So I'm doing all right. You know. You look at that compared to um, people not even living in extreme poverty, but people basically living almost anywhere else in the world, I've got it pretty good. Right? There's a big gap between my lifestyle and theirs. And, um, but you know what? When I look at, there's no gap, or maybe even a reverse gap, 
when you look at, well, who's happier, right? Who's got that sense of family? You know, I mean, I have a family, but it's pretty small and I don't spend nearly as much time with them as my friends because I live in a city and, you know, that's just not what people do anymore. Um, when you go to places in India, well, people are all surrounded by their family, right? And it's pretty amazing, right? They're, those cultures really value family. And I, again, I love my family, but, you know, it's not as big of a part of my life as um, in lots of other cultures, right? And then you look around, you know, a uh, sense of community. Well, those people all have a, not all of them, but in lots of other cultures and lots of other countries and lots of other places where they may not have the socioeconomic or call it economic status that I have um, by default. Um, they've still got all the needs at the top of the pyramid. They're doing at least as good as I am, if not better, right? An example I used on stage, which is a little extreme, is these orphans that I met in Ethiopia. They live in an orphanage, you know? They don't have a Mercedes. <laughs> They're never gonna, mm. but I cannot make the case that I'm any happier than them. And I'm not unhappy, like I got it pretty good. But compared to those kids, they know exactly who needs them when they wake up in the morning, right? And so that, comp that contrast I think is important to understand because those are the kinds of things technology is not helping us close that gap. We're not solving those kinds of problems with technology. We're not solving for the psychological well-being of a human. And I think it's really important to understand this distinction because, you know, partly because Silicon Valley is often acting as if we're going to solve every problem in the world with an app. We're not. We're not even trying. And I think the that you know, people can feel that. You look around you and people still hurting, you know? And so um, what I'm trying to show is that, you know, if a, it, it, for people who think that robots are gonna come and take all the jobs and there's nothing left for humans to do, they're absolutely wrong. The robots are gonna come and take all the jobs that humans suck at compared to a robot. <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of jobs and a whole bunch of work that we're not even getting to because it's hard and it doesn't scale and it's slow and it's expensive. Work like nursing, teaching kids, taking care of elderly folks who don't have grandkids to care for them. You know, there's a lot of things there that we gotta do work like helping people learn new skills if they do lose their job, right? Those are things that technology doesn't solve for you. Those are things that humans have to solve. And we have to do that work ourselves um, and figure out how to do it well long before we can ever expect technology to help solve those problems. And so um, those, are the, those are the points I was trying to kind of make on stage. And, you know, I think Maslow's hierarchy is just a, hopefully a, a way of helping people see the difference between those kind of two classes of problems, at least in my mind, that's out there. Yeah, yeah, I uh, totally agree. And I think if you look around, I think technology is actually making those top layers of the Noel Cells pyramid, it's yeah. making them worse from my Sometimes. perspective. 
Like if yeah. you like, it's you look at people who are checking Instagram all the time and comparing their life to other people's yeah. lives, and yeah. most of people like adding filters, posting only the best moments. You know, maybe not even the true representation of their lives, and they like sharing as if everything is awesome. And then people are getting depressed and sad because my life's not good as theirs. And then and then they go in turn and do the same, and uh, yeah. and so like and when somebody wakes up and the first thing they look at is their phone. The last thing they look at is their phone. Like an average, what in America people check, or in uh, the developed world people check their phones like 160 times per day. That is ridiculous. You know, the attention span has gone down to the levels of a goldfish, you know, five to 15 seconds. That is, that, to, in my mind, uh, that is uh, causing, even though more technologically advanced and more opportunities in life, at the same time it's calling, causing less fulfilled lives. How can you feel fulfilled if uh, your attention span is 15 seconds, right? You can't even have it. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 certainly the, what you're describing is, um, I'd say like a lot of people would express the, you know, that same frustration. And um, on an acute basis, it is um, easy to see that, right? But I think there's a couple things that get lost in that conversation a lot of times, which is that, you know, um, I got on email in 1982. Um, by the early 90s, I was an email addict before you'd even heard of the internet. And I was, I was, you know, literally, I had to like check my spam hadn't even been invented yet. Okay, I was, I would check my email, go to lunch, come home, check my email, go out to dinner, come home, check my email, go to a movie, and it was, I didn't have any email, like nothing was going on, but I just was addicted. I had to feel like oh no, I might be missing something. I had to check it to know. And there was no no mobile internet, so I had to go home to check my email. And that, um, and then by the time, you know, we got instant messenger with ICQ in the later 90s, um, you got addicted to that. With IRC, with chat, you know, we got addicted to that and it was hard to leave your computer. And then, but you know, every one of those things follows an addiction curve. You know, you overdo it at first, you do it like, you know, lose a couple of weeks of your life to Instagram, checking it every 40 seconds. But then you eventually figure out, okay, um, you know, this isn't actually adding that much to my life. And you start to figure out what's an appropriate level of interaction. Like most of us are not addicted to email anymore mm. because we got it under control. We're not addicted to instant messaging anymore because, you know, we mostly got it under control. We text maybe a little too much sometimes, we Instagram a little too much sometimes, but eventually you build that immunity, mm -hmm. right? You get it under control and you figure out what's the level where it's adding to my life and what's the level where it's making my life worse. And so that's the job of a human. That's just your job. You know, that's, that's what you gotta do is you've got to get that under control. Same thing as like, you know, drinking too much Coca-Cola or, you know, what all these other healthy lifestyle habits it, it's your problem you got to figure out how to get those under control so i think it's there's a personal responsibility thing there that yeah. often gets lost in the conversation um second all the positives get thrown under the bus like we not not thrown under the bus but they but the these technologies do bring something good to our lives and it takes us about 15 seconds to go from holy cow that's amazing to taking it for granted right um when i was a kid you know i grew up in alaska 
and I was interested in computers. And there was nobody for a thousand miles in any direction who was more interested in computers than me and knew more about it than me that I could learn from, right? Um, I literally had to go to the library and try and get them to get books about computers from mysterious places in the world I'd never heard of, like, you know, Cupertino, <laughs> like, I don't know. And so, you know, there's, it, it was hard and I was alone and being a computer nerd isn't particularly cool now. It really wasn't cool then. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, you feel like an outsider and you feel like an outcast and lots of people feel that way growing up. Even, you know, I mean, maybe if you're into football, you don't feel that way, but for most people, they feel kind of alone with their own set of interests. And, um, and what's amazing is ever since, you know, probably the mid nineties or so with Usenet and then beyond there, you know, you can be any kind of fringe wacko into weird shit and you can go online and find a thousand other people who are into the same thing as you and you will not feel alone. Right. And it's not just deviant stuff. I'm, you know, you could be interested in collecting beanie babies or you could be interested in like, I know people in America who got interested in cricket. Cricket is a uniquely not America that nobody in America plays cricket except for, you know, folks from India who came here to work for Microsoft, <laughs> they, they get together on weekends and play cricket. I guess. But the point is whatever weird thing you're into um, or not weird, I don't know. Uh, you can find a community online. It's amazing. Hmm. Right. And everybody gets to do that. And I think in that sense, it's hard to feel as alone as it was, you know, as was normal when I was a kid, right? You can go find that community that will be supportive. You know, um, I see it all the time. You know, we have this uh, company that um, is an apparel company that um, makes clothes in all sizes, not just normal sizes. So it goes up to 6XL, which is pretty wow. big. And that's a, and and I've met people from that community who helped us uh, develop the sizing, right? And they're pretty big people, and they come visit us. And I've never even seen people this big, much less a bunch of them at once. And because they normally don't leave the house, but you know what's amazing is they have this sense of community online. I mean, we that we found those communities, and they helped us develop the sizing, and they're all in it together. Right. One of them here is called the Fashionistas. <laughs> um, and there's another one called the Pacific Northwest Fatitude. <laughs> They're groups that have like, you know, found other people of the same um, same kinds of uh, problems shopping for clothes that they have and the same kinds of, you know, social uh, struggles that that are um, sort of unique to them. And it's amazing. It's really an amazing thing. Um, that's just another example. But the point is, whatever your situation is, you can find a group to be a part of. So I think that's one of the beautiful and amazing things that these technologies have brought us, right? And, you know, yeah, you can kind of, you know, if, if what Instagram is showing you is a bunch of unreasonably beautiful people, well, you know what? You can unsubscribe. You can unfollow them and you can go follow whoever you want, 
right? And so again, I think there's a personal responsibility thing. You don't get to blame the technology if it's brainwashing you. It's your choice what to do with it, right? You can unfollow anybody you want. It's your choice. If you don't like the way Facebook is feeding you fake news, you don't have to use Facebook every day. You can actually delete that app if you want. A lot of people don't realize, you know, the, the most valuable part of Facebook is the, uh, is the um, events, right? Well, there's a Facebook events app you can load on your phone. Load that one and then delete the Facebook app. Make your life better. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna ask you these questions. I mean, like it's a bit uh, playing devil's advocate here. I agree, definitely personal responsibility. Um, however, technology is advancing so much faster than we're evolving. Right? We still have the million-year-old brain that's used to the savannas of Africa. That is, not, is that linear and local. Technology is global, yeah. exponential, um, and uh, totally. Uh, like uh, in terms of personal responsibility, 100%. But what are your thoughts on this? That social media, it's proven that it, inv it invokes the same uh, releases of dopamine just as alcohol and gambling. And we have yeah. uh, restrictions on age for both of those, alcohol and gambling, whereas any child at the age of 12 can get on social media and they're completely, they don't have that sense of social responsibility, personal mm -hmm. responsibility. They like, it's completely out of their control and they right away they're getting these releases of dopamine every time they get a message or they check their phone. What are your thoughts on that? Like should government restrict the access to social media or even computer games for like, uh, like protect citizens or it's completely on in our hands? Um, well, here's the thing. I mean, there, there's a couple kind of pieces to this. Like one of them, like my daughter's 12. Mm. Um, She's had an iPad since they first came out. Um, she's had an iPhone uh, for years. Um, she's basically immune to the, um, you know, to the blinging of her phone because it blinks so much <laughs> that there's no dopamine <laughs> left, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, so in. I mean, it's not that she doesn't, she does use these things quite a bit, but she uses them um, to go find the things that she's interested in, right? Um, it doesn't, she doesn't get that same dopamine hit that you and I got. Mm -hmm. um, her, you know, social value is not um, measured by what she posts there, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, the, I think of it as, you know, she's growing up with those things. They're normal to her. She's developed a relationship with them that's a, sort of more appropriate for her and her generation. I'm not saying that it couldn't be better, but um, alcohol um, is not regulated the same way everywhere. Um, in, you know, lots of places in Europe, it's uh, not the government's job to regulate uh, when your kids can drink alcohol, um, it's legal, but, um, you know, families do that. They figure out what's appropriate. Kids grew up with a more, uh, normal and comfortable relationship with alcohol. It's not taboo. They don't turn 21 and go crazy. Like, Oh, I can finally drink all I want. That's what happens to American kids. Um, and I'm not sure that that's, you know, 
proven to be the best approach, right? Um, one of the big problems that we have with technology that you kind of constantly see humans struggling with is, you know, this is these notions that like, this isn't all positive. It's making our kids have, you know, the attention span of a goldfish and these kinds of things. We've got to stop it. And so what they do is they try to regulate these things too soon, right? I think regulatory um, uh, uh, or, or some kind of, um, you know, a, a approach to managing these things um, that can be addictive or that can get out of control, you know, that can, that can be helpful, um, whether it's families doing it or parents doing it or governments doing it or, or you know, businesses doing it. Yeah, you want to do those things, but not until you understand the problem and you understand what solution works, right, for what your values are, for what you care about and the outcomes that you want. And so, um, you know, my kid's school has decided no electronics. She's in middle school. So there's no electronics for kids in her grade, right, at, at school at all. Um, I mean, they do use computers and things, but the school provides them. You don't get to bring your phone and be on Instagram during school, um, which sounds fine to me, right? They, that's a new policy. They used to have kids bring in electronics, and they just figured it started to get out of hand, and they decided that it would be better for the school if they just um, had no electronics, which I'm fine with because they figured out in the context what works for them. I didn't need the government to do that. Her school uh, chose to do that. Other schools might choose different things, and I think that's fine. That's kind of the definition of diversity, right? Figure out what works for your community. Um, in her school, the high school kids do have electronics, right? So as she gets a little older, she'll probably be allowed to have electronics at school, but it'll, you know, she'll learn in that context um, that she has to be responsible for that and not overdo it, not do it at the wrong times and all those kinds of things. And what they figured out is, you know, by eighth or ninth grade, kids are ready to work on that problem. At sixth grade, they got other things to worry about. And so, you know, that makes sense to do. Um, all, in all cases, though, um, what I believe is that we are um, not good at, you know, guessing what's going to work, right? So when you're talking about the implications of a new technology, one that's just come out, um, you got to get some experience with it, right? People didn't, you know, people seem to have be unaware that when they signed up for Facebook, um, they were probably going to end up with a whole bunch of propaganda shoved at them. <laughs> Apparently everyone's acting so surprised, you know, um, I don't know how they could have missed it because, you know, I don't know anybody who's ever written a check to Facebook, but it's the thing they use the most every day. Um, same with Google. Obviously the deal was we're going to give you all these amazing free services and you're going to pay us by watching some ads. That's basically the deal. Um, so acting shocked and appalled now that you've watched a bunch of ads that you're upset about, um, seems a little disingenuous to me, but the point is, you know, you have to go through that cycle. We've been doing it long enough now that we've starting, we're starting to get some experience with the failure modes of social media, right? And if we can get, if we can do that for a while, then we can eventually figure out, okay, what are the ways this goes wrong? 
what are different ways that we could mitigate that problem? And, you know, if, if you're prone to want a babysitter to take care of problems for you, then you might say, well, this should be made illegal or Facebook should be forced to solve this problem for me. But it's usually uh, never seems to occur to people that they could actually solve this problem themselves by not using Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. It's also, you know, like in America, we, we have this weird situation where everyone thinks that Facebook threw the election mm -hmm. by by letting Russians post, you know, fake news for that swayed people. So I don't know a single person who thinks they voted for the wrong guy or the wrong person for president because of fake news, hmm. right? Everybody thinks, you know, that they voted for the right person and everybody who voted for the other person must have been swayed by fake news, right? Yeah. Like there's not actually, you know, uh, there's not actually, as far as I can tell anybody who voted for the wrong person in their own mind. And so, you know, this is, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that, that it, there's, they're making these sort of unfounded logical leaps and saying, well, artificial intelligence is coming and it wants to kill us all, so we should regulate it into oblivion. And this is so ridiculously unfounded. Like, we do not have artificial intelligence, it does not exist. We have no idea how long it'll take for those breakthroughs to come and for us to get something that's even like what we're imagining. And we have no evidence that it'll be malicious um, other than the fact that some humans are. And I, I think it's just, uh, you know, kind of a ridiculous set of conversations to be having when we could be um, aiming ourselves at solving, you know, actual problems. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, that's very uh, reassuring to hear coming sure. from you, um, yeah. you know, with, with all your expertise in entrepreneurship and AI. Um, uh, we're getting close to the end of the podcast, and I, I have to ask this question. Um, yeah. Data. What role does data play in technology? We've been talking about technology a lot and how it disrupts the world. Um, yeah. There's a lot of data scientists listening to this right now. Yeah. What can you say to them in terms of how does data, what, what is the role of data in this whole new right. world that we're entering? Well, um, you know, you have a pretty smart audience that, that knows a lot. I guess what I'd say is, you know, for a decade we've been, you know, at a point where we could start to use what, you know, what we call big data. Right, and that's just that our computers got big enough and fast enough that and had enough memory that they could handle a large amount of data. But it also comes from, you know, uh, sensors. We have all, you know, almost the ability to create something that measures almost anything now. And every day we get new types of sensors, and so those sensors are collecting data, and then we have networks to bring all that data back to our giant supercomputers where we can analyze that data on a large scale. All of this is unprecedented for humans, right? And so we're at the, in the situation where we get to take, when I keep saying new superpowers, well, this is what I'm talking about, right? This is a superpower we get. We were evolved to make decisions using gut instinct, right? We were evolved, like you, you and I said, I think at, at lunch, you know, to make decisions by looking around and saying, oh, is that a rock or a bear? <laughs> Either way, I should just run from it and decide later. Right? That's gut instinct, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we're evolved to do. And we're, you know, we're good at that, but it's only good to a point. And it's only good for certain types of decisions. And it was good for surviving bears and rocks, but um, 
now we have a superpower which can help us make better decisions, right? That's what big data is. Um, and that's what all the tools that are coming to support it are. For a decade, we've been doing big data, which was basically like shoving billions of rows into Excel. But now, because machine learning is so computationally intensive, we haven't really been able to do much with it until the last, call it five years. And so in this time frame, we finally got to the point where now it's cost effective to run these arbitrarily complicated machine learning algorithms um, and, the, and the output of things like neural nets, which are ex extraordinarily complex algorithms, but we can afford to run them on massive amounts of data in our, in our models because because um, our computers are so fast and so powerful and so cheap, right? So that's the superpower. And then what humans need to do is use their brains to imagine, well, what could we do with it, right? I believe, I mean, I'm interested in working on inventing new technologies <coughs> all the time. But if we didn't invent a single new technology for the rest of our lives, machine learning is so powerful there's so many places we can go with it that we can stay busy for the rest of our lives applying machine learning to everything. And that's, that's what I believe. Um, I, I think it's, you know, people are distracted by these ideas that, uh, you know, machine learning is um, somehow leading us to an AGI and somehow going to obsolete humans. I don't believe that is true at all. There's lots of work for humans to do. And I think machine learning is powerful enough that, you know, this is the community that can get ahead of it. It can take that and start imagining what we can do with it. I tell you, we are not computationally constrained. The computers we have today are make, you know, every computer I've had in my life a toy, right? And the computers you're gonna have in the next five or 10 years are gonna make today's supercomputers look like my first Sony, like a little toy with <laughs> giant buttons that are in primary colors. You have a piece of shit computer right now, no matter how big your supercomputer is. And we need to use our imagination to figure out what are we gonna do with all that computational ability? Well, um, you know, the, the toolkit that data scientists have is where it starts. And as you all well know, um, there's lots of ways that it can go wrong, right? You can start with bad data. You could have, I mean, anybody who's worked in Excel knows if you screw up the formula in one cell, the whole spreadsheet can go south, right? Well, that's the exact same kind of thing that can happen in, in any kind of, um, you know, uh, scenario that you're building, you know, using data. So we need a human to think these things through and to learn from experience and design models that make sense and you know create a market for data that makes makes sense um, to play in so people can get access to those things so i think it's um incredibly rich future for data scientists i think there's so much to do that's important and um and, you know I, I mean i couldn't be more thrilled about the way the way things are going and, and i think you guys are all lucky to be a part of it this is a we're in a renaissance, you guys, and you're on the front lines of getting to be part of it. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Pavlos. That's that's amazing wrap up. Um, just one final question. You you were at Data Science Go. You saw what it's like. What would you say to people who are because uh, we have Data Science Go 2019 coming up also at oh, the yeah. end of the end of September. What would you say to those who are like listening to this podcast and like on the fence? They're, they're not sure. Should they go? Should they not go? What would your message? Oh. Well, like I said at the beginning, I mean, this is a pretty special community, a pretty unique event. Um, I get to go to lots and lots of different events in tech and and and, and even outside of tech all over the world. And um, you know, I can't imagine a, a better opportunity. Like you can just go to this event and you will feel like part of something and you will learn a lot and you'll meet other people who are excited and it, you know uh it's a pretty special opportunity i'd say so definitely get there thank you thank you pavlos really appreciate you taking some time to come on the show and i'm yeah. sure people will get value out of this thank you so much yeah my pleasure thank you so there you have it ladies and gentlemen that was the famous hacker inventor and entrepreneur Pablos Holman. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did and got lots of key insights and takeaways. And of course, there were plenty of more topics that we wanted to cover off, but we're limited on time. So if you'd like to get more of Pablos's inspiration and ideas, then I highly recommend his TED Talks, which you can find all over the internet and have 20 million plus views. And also his keynote speech at the Data Science Go conference, which you can find on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. It's available there for you to watch. You'll feel as if you were at Data Science Go. We were all sitting on the edges of our seats when he was delivering his talk. Highly, highly recommend that to you. And speaking of Data Science Go, as you heard from Pablo himself, this is a non-typical, this is not just standard data science conference, this is something we're building, it's a community we're putting together. Um, this year is happening in San Diego on the 27th, 28th and 29th of September. So check it out. Make sure if you can come that you do come because you want to be part of something bigger. You want to network people, you want to meet people like Pablo Holman and lots of our speakers. We're going to have over 30 speakers at the Data Science Go event this year. So make sure you are there. You can find your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. You can find all uh, the, the lineup of speakers, the agenda, and lots and lots of other things that you will experience at the event. And I personally would love to meet you there. So head on over to www.datasciencego.com and get your ticket today. And I look forward to seeing you back here on the Super Data Science Podcast next time. And until then, happy analyzing.